Good evening, everyone. The second Bible reading will be taken from Revelation chapter 2, from verse, verse 1 to 29. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of Nicolaitans, which also I hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual, sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused, she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Hmm. And all the churches will know that I am he who search mind and heart, and I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received, even I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is the word of the Lord. I hope you guys will give me a little while. I actually like seeing people when I'm teaching. Uh, so I feel like this speaker is actually, sorry, is hiding a few faces. I'd like to see. Okay, I'll, I'll just keep peeking over to see if people are awake, uh, uh, to see if they're not sleeping. Uh, anyway, guys, well, welcome to the evening service. Uh, it is great to see all of you tonight. Um, if there's anyone who's joining us for the very first time, I don't see anyone who might be, uh, so it's all good. Uh, it's good to see all of you here tonight. You, we are in our third week in our series titled, Going Through the Most. Um, great series we have been doing that we have started in the book of Revelation. Now before that, before we start, let me just read for us uh, chapter 3 which we were meant uh, to read, uh, also with our reading a little bit earlier. So I'll just pick it up from there. 
If you open your way to chapter 3, chapter 3 reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names and Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed as in a white garment, and I will never blot out blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this, the words of the, of the Holy One, the true one who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the, earth, on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write, I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the name of Jerusalem, which comes down from, from my God out of heaven and my new, out of my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would, you, would, you, would, would that you were either cold or hot? Uh, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I will counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may, be, so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and serve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I, I, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Now, like I said at the beginning, we are in the third week of our series titled Going Through the Most. Now, if you missed the first two weeks, let me just give you a quick recap of what we spoke about. You would notice in the notes before you that what David stated so clearly is that the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages by reminding them that God is working out his purposes in the midst of evil, pain, suffering, and apparent satanic oppression. 
See, in the last two weeks, we have explored and have come to understand the theme of the sovereignty of God or the sovereignty of Jesus. Now, you may ask, what is the sovereignty of Jesus? Well, in the first first week, we saw Jesus revealed in all of his majesty and glory. And there we saw, we were told that Jesus is ever present and everlasting. He is Alpha and Omega. He's ruler of all things. He's the loving Savior who has freed us from our sin. And he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the first to be raised from death. And he's the one like the Son of Man, which means he's a representative for humanity before God. And the second week, David helped us to see that Jesus is the slain lamb sitting on God's throne who is worthy to be praised. And this is why Jesus is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised because we are told he created all things. And we are also told that he was slain. He, he was the sacrifice on the cross, a sacrifice that showed God's victory, not only over sin, but a sacrifice that showed God's victory over all that is evil. And so what we see when we look at Revelation 4 and 5 is that in the sacrifice of the lamb, we see the victory of the lion of Judah, the root of David. And we also saw when David took us through chapter 4 and 5 that because of these two things, Jesus is the one who is worthy to open the scroll, who is able to break and open the scroll, a scroll that tells us of God's judgment or his justice against his enemies and the enemies of his kingdom. And so we sing, as we usually do here at church, is he worthy? Is he worthy? Yes. Yes, of course he is worthy. He is worthy because of all of these things. And you see, John, tonight in our passage, wants us to see that Jesus is not a lost ball in high weeds. Jesus is not lost over his head. Jesus knows what he is doing. See, Jesus is the majestic and loving Savior who is in control of the world. He's the majestic and loving King who is in control of the world. And tonight we will explore further this theme of the sovereignty of God. We will explore it particularly as we think about Jesus' work through the Spirit in his church. A church that finds itself in the midst of chaos. In the midst of chaos from within and chaos from without. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Father, we pray tonight that you would help us to hear the words of the Spirit. And we pray that your Spirit tonight would encourage us if we feel overwhelmed by the brokenness that we see in our world. And we pray that your Spirit would would rebuke and correct us if we find ourselves underwhelmed by Jesus and turning to sin and the world. So we pray that through the power of your Word and your Spirit, you would do a great work in us. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Now to say 2020 has been a difficult year would be an understatement. It's been a difficult year for a lot of people. See, the whole world has been going through the most because of COVID. See, one morning you or someone you know got up. You prepared to go to work. And you went about things as normal, got into a taxi, a bus, or a train, or your car, got to work, worked as you normally do, went into the cafeteria to have lunch. But around five or to six days later, you started feeling unwell. And so you decided to go to the doctor, and the doctor gave you this diagnosis, a doctor or a testing station. They gave you this diagnosis, that you have the symptoms for covid And so you were confronted with the terrible news that this virus, that for a long time seemed like it was far off, this virus that seemed like it only affected a particular people who have less melanin than others, has now struck you. That's the terrible news that you or probably others have received. Now, although this virus or disease has been devastating, and it has, 
Don't hear me say it's not been. It's been devastating. People have lost their lives. They've lost loved ones. But what we have seen, what we've got to thank God for, is that in our world, we have people who are the authority when it comes to human biology and viruses. So they've studied these viruses, and they've studied the human body. So they know what diagnosis to give us and the treatment or the prescription that is needed thereafter. And so as difficult as things have been, we must praise God that there are people who have authority over all these things, people who have helped to bring healing. Now, but also during this time, there are people who, although did not look like they have the virus, found out that they do. See, they're, they're called asymptomatic. So they, they look healthy. They look like they're fine. But they've been infected by the virus and just don't show the symptoms. They look healthy on the outside, but they're sick. A certain footballer by the name Zlatan Ibrahimovic, if you struggle to pronounce that, I'll get that, was one of those people who was asymptomatic. See, Zlatan, despite his advancing age, especially for, for a footballer, is a guy who's healthy. He looked healthy, but one time he went to practice and was told that he has the virus and so needs to go back home. And he went to Twitter to announce that he has the virus, although shows no symptoms. He feels healthy. Now, one of the funniest things to see was someone who said this. Our thoughts are with the virus at this moment. And this is because Zlatan Ibrahimovic is the Chuck Norris of football. See, although he looked like he was okay and healthy, he was sick. The other thing we've got to thank God for is that there are some among us who have actually not been infected by this virus. I've got to thank God for that. And we know the message from the authorities is this to us. We have got to continue doing what we have been doing and following the regulations so that we do not get infected or infect others. Now, you may be asking, where are you going with this? Well, let me implore you to journey with me as we come to the scriptures today to discover what God is saying in our passage today. And we will see how Jesus and his spirit, the authority over the church, give a diagnosis on the church. And thereafter prescribe, the, and thereafter prescribe words of encouragement or words of warning and judgment. So as we come to our passage, this is exactly what we will see tonight. And we will actually hop onto the principle that David shared with us last week that he called the fallen condition. Now, I explained this principle as being every passage of scripture teaches us or tells us something about how you and I are not worshiping or trusting God. Now, let me unflesh that, uh, that very principle that he given us in these three questions, three questions that you and I should always ask when we read every passage of scripture. And these are the three questions. The first one is, what does this passage teach me about God? Second, what does this passage teach me about humanity? The third, what response is it calling for? And if you notice on the outline, we have three points that actually correspond to these very questions. And the three points are Jesus and his spirit, Jesus and his church, and the call to, to hear the spirit. Let's go to our very, very, very first point, Jesus and his spirit. And we'll read the chapters that we read again. I'll read a few verses for us. And I want you to notice how these verses particularly describe Jesus. Notice how these verses describe Jesus. I'll read chapter 2, verse 1. I hope you have a Bible before you and can find those very verses. Listen to the reading of God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. Move down to verse 8. Verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last, who died and came to life. Verse 12 of the very same chapter reads as follows, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a, a sharp two-edged sword. Now chapter 3 verse 1 reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, 
the words of him who has the seven, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then we'll read verse 7 and verse 14. Verse 7 reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Verse 14 reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, I don't know if you notice how these verses describe Jesus. I'm not sure if you notice how they describe his sovereignty, how Jesus is above all. I want you to peek at them and look at them again. Look at that, the one who holds the seven stars. Now, we'll try and explain all of these things so that we may come to understand them. But this is something else that I think is worthwhile to notice. Notice that at the beginning of each letter that he writes, all seven of them, the, fir- the very first thing that John does is tell these Christians about Jesus. Do you notice that? He describes Jesus to them. And, and when you and I read this, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. It shouldn't at all because John actually begins his book in this way. This book, this is the revelation, the uncovering or the unveiling of Jesus. The NIV reads it as being the uncovering or the unveiling from Jesus. And both are true. This uncovering, this unveiling, this vision, this prophecy, this message that John has comes from Jesus. And it's about Jesus. Now, I hope you heard that. It's about Jesus. And so as you and I come to this book, we shouldn't be coming here trying to use some Morse codes to try and decipher a secret code or secret knowledge that is found in this book. Because the book is not about that. The book primarily is about Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. See, if there's anything John wants us to walk away with after we have read the book of Revelation is a picture of a much more majestic, uh, bigger, awe-inspiring, air-gasping Jesus. That's what he wants. That's what he wants us to walk away with, a bigger picture of Jesus. And so it's really unfortunate that people actually come to the book and try and find some secret codes to be found here. No, this book is about Jesus. It's about Jesus and his magnificent plan to rescue God's creation and to have victory and justice over all who have opposed his kingdom. That's what Revelation is about. And so from these verses that we have read, we see so clearly that what John wants us to see is that Jesus is sovereign. And the word sovereign here means above. The word sovereign is actually taken from the word superanus, which means above. Jesus is above. He's above all. Jesus is above all. Now, here are three ways in which we see Jesus as being above all, as you will see on the notes that I gave you there. We see Jesus' sovereignty in all of life and history, and we see his sovereignty over death and his sovereignty in judgment. Let's start with the very first one, sovereignty over all of life and history. And we see this so clearly in chapter 2, verse 1, verse 8, And in chapter 3, verse 1, verse 7, and verse 14, what is clear there is that Jesus holds the angels. So seven stars, you would have seen in chapter 1, verse 18 to 20, we actually told the seven stars are the angels. Jesus holds the angels in his hands. We also told he holds the seven spirits in his hands. So it's as though I'm holding these keys. I'm holding these keys. I have total authority and control over these keys. See, Jesus has a total control over all angels and over all things in our world. But this is something else we see in those very verses. Look at that in verse 1. Jesus is the one who, who walks among the seven lampstands. Now, now, what is that about? We saw that the seven lampstands in chapter 1 is actually the churches. See, what we see here is Jesus' authority in, over the churches. But it's not just his authority, it's his care and concern for the churches that is also told to us here. He walks among the churches as God walked uh, in the garden with Adam and Eve. He walks among the churches by the power of his spirit. It's, it's like an invigilator 
So we've got a few students here. It's like an invigilator who is there. Yes, they've got the authority to watch what the students do, that they do not stray by pulling knots from under the table or from their shirt, but they're there to also help the student. Excuse me. Help the students. Can I please get order? To also help the students, to also show care for them if they find themselves stuck anyway. So Jesus walks among the churches in the same way, and this shows his sovereignty. But we also see that this Jesus is the first and the last. And this is not the first time this has been used. In chapter 1, this very phrase has been used. And this phrase conveys to us that Jesus holds the past and the future in his hands. He holds the past and the future. He's ever-present. He's in control of all of time and all of history. But from these very verses we read, we see that Jesus as God's king holds the keys to the palace, to the kingdom of God. He has the key of David. He's the king of God's kingdom. Whatever door he opens, no one can shut. And whatever door he shuts, no one can open. He's sovereign. He's above all. John wants us to see that. Jesus is sovereign over all of life and is sovereign over all of history as well. Now, in verse 8 of chapter 2 as well, John shows us that Jesus does not just have authority or is not just sovereign over all of life and all of history, but Jesus is sovereign over the grave. Jesus is sovereign over the grave. We are told that he is the one, in verse 8, who died and came to life. Chapter 1, we're told he's the firstborn of the dead, and we're told that he has the keys of Hades. See, Jesus has the keys to the grave. Jesus has power over the grave. He's sovereign over that as well. And lastly, we see that Jesus is sovereign in judgment, and this is clear in chapter 2, verse 12. Look at that. Jesus is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, this sharp two-edged sword, especially where we find ourselves in Pergamum here, represented was a symbol of justice in the Roman Empire. And actually, Pergamum was the administrative center for justice. But look at how John uses this. He uses this and what is said in the Old Testament to say, Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority. Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority in judging. And so for his church who is being persecuted... The great comfort they can find is that Jesus, who is the judge, is the one who will ultimately bring justice. See, Jesus is in control. And as we hear these words, these words are either comforting or terrifying or frightening to us today. And they should be comforting if we are among God's people, if we have come to believe in Jesus and live for him. But they should be frightening as well. If we have turned to the world and turned to sin, we need to remember this, this Jesus is sovereign over life, over death, and in judgment. Now, the next thing I want us to look at very quickly there is the seven spirits, which I have said there are the Holy Spirit. Now, David said I would explain this. Now, I must say this. I'll explain it, but we, we won't spend as much time on it. I want, you to, I want you to see, rather, instead of looking at who the seven spirits are, I want us to see more how this, the Holy Spirit actually works in the church of God. We'll spend a lot more time doing that. Now, why am I making the argument that the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit? Well, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 4, which I will read for us, it reads as follows. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, we can assume or we can presume that this is the one who's sitting on the throne. So it's talking about God. We know this applies of Jesus and the Spirit as well. But it's talking about God. Look at what it says next. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. You see the Trinity so clearly there, working together, or rather the Trinity painted out for us there in those very verses. Here's the interesting thing to see. The seven stars are not mentioned in that section. So some people say or believe that the seven stars refers to the angels, but they believe that the seven spirits also refers to the angels. But it's interesting that the seven spirits here are mentioned alongside Jesus and the one who's sitting on the throne. 
Surely should, it should have us to see that this is the Holy Spirit. And moreover, look at the contrast that we see in chapter 3 in verse 1. Chapter 3 verse 1 reads as follows. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, does it say of God? Interestingly, it doesn't. If you read chapter 4 verse 5, it uses very similar language. It says... And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and pearls. And before the throne uh, were burning seven torches, and which are the seven spirits of God. See, I think with chapter 1 verse 4 and with this, it, it, it is good to presume that here John is talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, seven, symbolic for completeness and fullness and totality. The Spirit who is fully God, the Spirit who is the same in substance and authority as God and Jesus. See, John here wants us to see the work of the Spirit. And like I said, as we move on to our next point, we'll see clearly the work of the Spirit. So let's move on to our next point, Jesus and his church. And we'll see particularly how his church works, especially in calling us in the last part, in the last point to come back to Jesus. So second point, Jesus and his church. See, as we look at Jesus and his church, we will see that this message points us to Jesus and, and his church, uh, a church that finds itself in the midst of chaos from without and chaos from within. Now, what do I mean? Chaos from without, this is chaos that is external, evil, suffering, persecution, and the brokenness that we see in our world. Chaos from within, this is our own struggle with sin, our own struggle with, with our own desires, uh, and our own struggle to be pulled by worldly desires to walk away from Jesus. And so here we'll see how Jesus works with this church in the midst of this chaos from without and from within. Now, I must say, as before we go further, that what is said here does not simply apply to these churches. See, all, these church, all the other churches would have read these messages, would have read these messages as applying in one sense to them. And we should realize that although these messages were written to this church, these churches in the first century, they also apply to us today. And so we read them through the lens uh, that they apply to them. So as we go through that, I have three points, which are actually two points, which are before you there as we talk about Jesus and his relationship with his church. One, Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows his church. I want you to notice in verse 2, I'll read again the verses where this is pointed out. Verse 2 of chapter 2. I know your works. Chapter, uh, verse two, uh, chapter, verse eight, rather, verse nine, rather, of chapter two. I know, and we see he says your tribulation. Chapter two, verse thirteen. I know where you dwell. Chapter uh, two, verse eight, verse nineteen. I know your works, and so on. Uh, I'm sure you see that. Jesus knows his church. Jesus knows his church. He, he truly knows his church because he's sovereign over all of life and all of history. And so he knows the good works of his church. But Jesus also knows when you and I have begun to be enticed by sin and the world and feel and see his love rather as being underwhelming to us, his love and his grace to us. He knows that. And three, Jesus knows when you and I feel overwhelmed by evil and suffering in our world. So let's start with that first one. He knows our good works. Notice that with all of the, well, with most of the churches, Jesus commends the good things that they're doing. The church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. It's clear. Jesus knows their love and zeal for the gospel. They're standing for the gospel. They're defending the gospel. The church in Smyrna is said to be standing against false teachers. Or false teaching. The church in Pergamum is said to be faithful in persecution, so much so that one of them even died 
in standing for the gospel, died as a martyr for this gospel. They laid down their life. The church in Thyatira, uh, we see they are commended for their love, their service, and their patient endurance and suffering. And the church in Philadelphia is commended for their faithfulness towards Jesus, despite their strength, we are told in chapter 3. Now, strength could refer to size of the church. It could refer to their influence or to their, their resources. Now, it's interesting how all of those uh, most of the time go together. Now, I want you to notice that two churches are actually not commended for good works. But we'll come to that a little bit later. But we see here that Jesus commends five churches for the good work that they have been doing. See, brothers and sisters, if these very marks, these marks of love and zeal for, good, for the gospel and God's word and to stand against false teaching and faithfulness and persecution and love, faith and service and faithfulness to Jesus, even our, even, even our size or our influence, if these are the marks that mark our life or mark the church, our church, then hear this. Hear this. Jesus knows that we are standing for the gospel. He knows that we are standing for him in all areas of our lives, in the midst of evil, suffering, and persecution. He knows, even in the midst of difficulty, that we are standing for him. And so he commends us. And so redeemed family, whatever situation you find yourself, if these are the marks that mark your life, if you are standing for the gospel, Jesus commends you for your good work. He commands you for your good work. And so, when we are tempted to be overwhelmed by the chaos around us, let us turn our eyes to this sovereign Jesus. And we will realize that all this chaos around us will grow strangely dim in the light of his mercy and grace. When we realize how much he commands us, how, how much he delights in us, how much he brings him joy to see his church that is healthy. So let us continue standing for him in whatever places we find ourselves. But, but, I must say, if you were to visit the doctor and the most parts of your body were healthy or well, but one part of your body was ailing or sick, and the doctor would declare you as being sick, wouldn't they? They would say you're sick, right? So I want us to notice here that Jesus in the same way points this out to some of the churches. See, he commends them for their good work. And then immediately thereafter, because there might be a part of their body that, that could get them to be sick or that makes them sick, Jesus immediately turns to them and points to the things that make them sick. See, Jesus gives a diagnosis of a number of the churches here, five of them actually, and he says to them, I know that you are sick. I know that you are sick. And he says to, the, to some of these churches, you look like you're healthy, but you're actually sick. See, these churches here were experiencing chaos from within. They were struggling with sin. Sin and worldly passions were pulling them away from Jesus. And so Jesus points out to how they are sick. Now let me just point three things, because there's quite a number of these churches. Let me point three things that are symptoms of a church. And I would say an individual who is sick, who shows symptoms of being sick. This is the very first one. The first one is choosing zeal over love. See, the church in Ephesus is commended for their, for their zeal in the gospel, for standing for the gospel. They stood for the gospel no matter what the cost was. But Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, a lot of people wonder what that means. What does it mean that they have abandoned the love that they had heard at first? Well, it would be good to explain that. It would be good to see that what he's pointing to here is how their love for each other and their love for God has grown cold. Their love 
for others and their love for God has grown cold. See, in their zeal to, to, to defend the gospel, to fight against the gospel, to, dis, to defend particular things in the gospel, they were harsh towards one another. They were harsh towards one another. Their love for others had grown cold. And here's the interesting thing. See, when our love for others has grown cold, what you and I should often check is whether our love for God is still hot. We always need to check that these two things always go together. They're never separate. If our love for others has grown cold, we should check how our love for God is. There's a guy at college who actually came and preached a sermon from these very verses and actually made an extra extension from this passage and said, if our love for others has grown cold in the church, then it means our love for God is no longer hot. And then he made this extension. If these two things are true, then our love for those outside of the church will be gone as well. So he pointed out that we will not evangelize. So, 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 so Jesus here clearly says to this church, you have chosen zeal over love towards others. Now, the question to ask is, could this be describing you? Have you chosen zeal over love for others? Has your love for those around you, as you defend the gospel, grown cold? Has the love? In our church, grown cold as we defend the gospel. You have abandoned your first love, Jesus says. That's one of the first things I think you should see. The second, I said there are too many for us to see, so we'll look at three. The second is choosing love or unity over zeal. And this is the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira. See, these two churches were faithful in persecution. They are commended for their faith and love. But Jesus makes it quite clear they have tolerated people who teach a gospel that allows for sin. So you see how this is the inverse of the first one? How this church has chosen love, has chosen unity, over zeal for the gospel. See, they're not standing for the gospel by confronting people who are teaching something other than the gospel. So the two examples that are given there is Balaam and Jezebel, two characters in the Old Testament that are pointed out to have drawn God's people away from God and to be characterized with those two people. It's not a great thing for the church of God. See, they've not chosen to stand for the gospel to point out that they've tolerated those who teach a false gospel. Now, I think we do this as well, don't we? Someone among us is perhaps unforgiving, and they find every reason to justify why they can't forgive the other person. And yet we tolerate that. See, this passage here talks about how these Christians tolerated idolatry and idolatry and sexual immorality. But, but let me point to different examples. I want to focus on this one. How you and I can be unforgiving and we can find different ways to justify why we don't want to forgive. And I think if we see anything like that in the church, we can't choose unity. We can't choose unity instead of confronting the people and saying you are believing in a false gospel. But sometimes the inverse is true, isn't it? That sometimes there are people in our church that we don't confront or around us that we don't confront because of, because of the wrongs that they've done. See, the person might not see what they've done. And we might see what they've done. But we don't confront them. And they might find various reasons to justify why they believe what they believe there. And the same is true they have believed in a false gospel. They have elevated themselves. And so to all of us, this is something we've got to think about. It's not just to the church corporate, but it's to us as individuals. Let's think about this. Could this be describing us? That we have tolerated things that oppose the gospel amongst our friends, our family, and in the church. The last one, which I won't spend as much time in, is choosing success over faithfulness. And this is clear uh, for, for the two churches here, Sardis and 
and, 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 and Laodicea. See, Sardis was a church that is said to have a reputation. So at one point, it seems like they were doing well. But it seemed like they rode on their success. And they grew cold. And, and notice what he compares them. He actually compares them to a symmetry that is outside of the town. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. To the church in Laodicea, that is said to be lukewarm. It seems this church has been drawn towards wealth or, or wealth or resources. And here, it looks like they are seeing their wealth as a blessing from God. And, and think about this. Think about the, the many times that we and others often think wealth is synonymous with God's blessing. And so very often we don't see the times when we are drifting away from God. And we, we, we find ourselves in a time or a point where we, we don't make a stand for the gospel or don't make a stand against, uh, make a stand for the gospel or, let me rephrase that, what we find ourselves doing is we find ourselves in a place where we compromise and we compromise by not standing for the gospel and by being like the culture around us. And this is what is happening with this church in Laodicea. They were like the culture around them, the wealthy culture. They've become like them. They, 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 there's nothing different between them and the culture around them. Now I think this may be true of us today as well. That we may look at success over faithfulness, and this is what I mean. That we may look, that people may see us and remember our knowledge of scripture and remember how we've served in the church. And we might be writing on that. But God is actually looking at you or looking at us and saying, Hey man, you are dead. You think that you are close to me, but you are far off. You've drifted far off from me. And so we've got to ask whether these things describe us. Second thing I want you to see there is that Jesus in love rebukes or warns and reassures and or reassures his church. See, when you and I are overwhelmed by the chaos from without, the evil in the world, suffering and brokenness. Or you and I are underwhelmed by Jesus, and so we choose sin, and we choose the world. And so there's chaos from within us. We choose sin over Jesus. I think the solution to both of these things is the same, to turn our eyes to Jesus. But, but I want you to notice that the solution comes from two different angles. And this is what I mean by that. When you and I are overwhelmed by the evil in the world, notice how Jesus reassures this church. He reassures these churches that are standing for the gospel. He reassures them in their persecution that he is with them. And not that he's only with them, but he reassures them of promises towards them, promises of a better future. But when you and I are underwhelmed by Jesus, we don't see him as sovereign. We are also called to turn to Jesus and see him as sovereign. But in this sense, that this Jesus will judge. Yes, he will bring justice for God's people. But this, this Jesus will also judge those that are within his church. And I want you to see that. That when the church is stuck in the mud of sin, Jesus comes in and rebukes and calls the church to repent. Because they have forgotten that Jesus is the ultimate judge. He is the one who is sovereign and is above all. Notice the number of times that John says a number of things. Look at to the church in Ephesus. He says, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. Notice to the church in Pergamum that he says, therefore repent, verse 16. If not, I will come to you and, and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The church in Thyatira as well is told <clears throat> rather let's move on from the church in Thyatira. The church in Sardis is told this so I'm just finding that verse that I read a little bit earlier. Verse 3 Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. you. You see how we called in two reactions to turn our eyes towards the sovereign Jesus. But for the church that is being persecuted, the Christians that are struggling and are overwhelmed by the suffering in the world, 
we are told, turn to the sovereign Jesus. Turn and look at the sovereign Jesus and the promises that he makes to his church. And listen to some of these promises. Verse 8, verse 7 of chapter 2. To the one who conquers, I will grant to him to eat in the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You see how Jesus comforts and encourages the church that is overwhelmed, the Christians that are overwhelmed by suffering. But Jesus also calls the Christians that are struggling with sin to repent. Now the closing point is for us to hear what the Spirit says. If you are discouraged at this time, you have been standing for God, and you are discouraged. You've, you, you're discouraged by the evil and suffering that you see around us. Remember the promises that this Jesus makes to us. Remember that he's sovereign, and turn your eyes towards him. Hear what the Spirit is saying. See, the Spirit is the only one who can imprint these words on our hearts so that we may believe them. So hear the call of the Spirit. But if you find yourself stuck in sin, then hear this. This Jesus is calling you to turn to him and see him as being the sovereign one, as the sovereign judge, who is calling you to repent of your sin. Because he will come one day, could be soon, to bring justice and judgment. So these words can be comforting or terrifying. And the call for us today is to hear what the Spirit is saying. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus and we praise you for his sovereignty. His sovereignty over all of life and history, over all of death, over death rather, and in judgment. And we praise you for the work of your Spirit. Father, we pray that you would remind us that you see our good works and that they bring you great joy. And we pray as well, and that as we, excuse me, when we find ourselves overwhelmed by the chaos without, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus, who sits above all. But Lord, when we find ourselves underwhelmed by you, and your sovereignty, and your majesty, and decide to choose sin, and the desires of this world, would you remind us to repent, and come back to you, who is willing to embrace us. In Jesus' name, amen.